Well, good evening. Good evening to you. We're yeah. so proper so tonight. Proper. That's because we are in company. We can't. We're showing off for we, our guests. We have to have our good manners out. That's right. We have Sarah with us tonight. Sarah has been a friend of mine for years. We're really excited that you are here with us, Sarah, to share some of your stories with us. This is an episode that we've talked about doing for a long time. And when Megan told me that you have had quite the experiences uh, with this topic, I was excited to hear that you were willing to talk about them. So we want to talk about alcohol use, which we recognize the irony. And I would like to say that we are partaking in some alcohol use while we record this, but it doesn't mean we're not serious about it. No, it's not dry January yet. That's right. So Sarah, say hello. Hello, everyone. And thank you so much, ladies, for having me with you guys, because I am the biggest fan of this podcast. And I listen to you guys all the time. And I love it. And I crack up. I'm such a fan. And I'm just having my own personal, you guys are like my Justin Bieber. And this is like what happens over 40 is you fan out on podcast hosts. And that's how I know I'm over 40. I can relate to that. I feel like sure. I've just truly made it. I know. All for the first time ever. <laughs> thank you. To be clear, we're not talking to Sarah because she's an alcoholic. Yeah, I'm not an alcoholic, nor am I a professional or a doctor or a therapist. In fact, the word alcoholic apparently is passe. Yeah, I was, well, I guess really pleasantly surprised when I started doing some of this reading because the word alcoholic really sets up this binary scenario. So you either are an alcoholic or you're not. You have a problem or you don't. And it doesn't really leave room for problem drinking, tending toward maybe drinking too much if you don't have that physical dependency or you're not willing to say, I'm an alcoholic. So for me, it's something that I've always thought like I should cut back a little bit and I'll do a dry month every year, you know, just to make sure that I still can. And, <laughs> and the good news, you're I can. not physically dependent. I'm really on not. It. <laughs> no. And it's, for me, it's just an incredibly social thing. I don't really drink at home by myself hardly ever. It's just the default when I'm being social, which is often I'm mostly now with Megan and my mom, cause I don't see anybody else, but you know, um, <laughs> but it's easy for, you know, that one drink to turn into three. And so the idea that you now have this spectrum of alcohol use, it's actually called alcohol use disorder. That makes it a lot easier to picture yourself somewhere along that without saying like, I have a physical problem. What's the diagnosis then? So if you are somebody who heavily abuses alcohol more than others, and a doctor in the past may have had to make the decision about whether to diagnose you as an alcoholic or not, but that term isn't used anymore, what are you diagnosed as? As having alcohol use disorder, AUD. Oh, yeah. But if it's a spectrum. Well, there's a spectrum as far as where you are in your stages of drinking, and it might eventually get to alcoholism and or may never get there. Right. And I still think right. like, by the time you get to the end, you're an alcoholic because you've got a dependence on it that is both like physical and emotional. And it's a, it's a different thing than just abusing alcohol. So yeah, there's a spectrum for sure. Alcohol use disorder is different than alcoholism. 
They just don't even use that term anymore. Okay. Basically. I think what Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. I think what you're saying is the most severe end of that spectrum would probably be what we used to kind of classify as alcoholism, like that full on dependency where the only solution is complete abstinence. Right. Is somebody who is physically dependent on alcohol or else they have physical symptoms of withdrawal an alcoholic, is that what it takes? Or could you be somebody who is not physically dependent, but heavily abuses alcohol and is still, well, I was going to say classified as an alcoholic, but apparently we don't say that anymore. So So I think that there's the spectrum as to where it starts. And so it starts with increased drinking and you're using the alcohol. Why are you using alcohol? If you're, are you just being social? Is it just for fun? Or are you using it to regulate your mood in some sort of way? Or are you using it to regulate an emotion? And that emotion doesn't have to be anger or sadness. It can be boredom and loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, a pandemic, anxiety. <laughs> That's 2020 in a nutshell. That's like that increased drinking where you're using it to regulate your emotion. And that's where you should you know, start to maybe go, wait a minute, what am I doing? Because that can quickly turn into more problematic drinking. And I think basically that's more like stage three is that problem drinking where it's frequent, it's uncontrolled. You start to experience the real impact, whether it's missing work, you know, your your relationship suffering, you yourself are feeling some physical effects from it more than just the occasional hard weekend. And then it goes into like the dependence you're needing it for something more before it finally turns into an addiction, which is completely physical and a psychological need to drink. And you have little to no control over it. Yeah. And the way that that good old DSM that we learned about with Danielle classifies it, there's actually subclassifications. So there's a list of 11 symptoms that basically if you answer yes to two or three of them, then you are mild on the AUD spectrum. If it's four or five of them, you're moderate. And if it's six or more, then it's considered severe alcohol use disorder. I I don't even know what those questions are, but I like that better than, you know, when you go to the doctor and they ask you, like, how many drinks do you have on average per week? week? Every time I wink, I take a drink. (laughs) Which, by the way, I have heard that they always double it because they know that you're lying. That's true. So we're going to talk about my experience with this, but when the numbers were given, the doctor automatically was like, okay, I'm going to time that by two because drinkers underreport. That's just part of the disease uh, minimizing it. But also too, just think about it. When you pour yourself a glass of Prosecco, are you pouring yourself the right amount of ounces to be considered a drink? It's the right amount for me, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> It's always the right amount, but if you are pouring yourself or your friends, you know, making yourself a mixed drink, are you putting in one ounce of vodka into it? You don't know. You're taking the bottle and you're pouring in. So yeah, you're not usually measuring. You're not measuring. So you're probably actually on that scale having two drinks when you think you're having one. Fair point. Yeah. I think it's easier for most people to answer questions like that than it is to just like throw out a number like, hey, how many drinks do you think you normally have per week? So Mm -hmm. what are like some of the questions? So I've got the list here. I'll go down the first couple and we'll make sure to link to these resources in the show notes so that if you are interested, you can go take a peek. Number one, alcohol is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period of time than was intended. Number two, there's a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use. 
Three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain alcohol, use alcohol, or recover from its effects for cravings. And it, I mean, it goes on and on, right? There's a lot okay. of ways. Okay. Yep. If you answer yes to a couple of those things, like, yeah, I, when I do drink, I tend to drink more and longer than I thought I would. And sometimes I have cravings, but that's all you answer. You have two and then you're mild. Again, I like that better too, because you know, they've always said X number of drinks for men, X number of drinks for women is like moderate or whatever. But for me having three drinks over a four hour period, I might react completely differently than another friend. So I don't know that you should measure a number of drinks. That's more about how much do you need it? How much are you depending on it? Like, how are you tolerating it? How are you recovering from it? That kind of stuff I think is a better measure of Mm -hmm. whether your intake is appropriate. Yeah. Just for the record, a drink is measured as five ounces of wine, 12 ounces of beer, or I believe it's 1.5 ounces of spirits. And obviously everything has like slightly different percentages. So that's just the most generic measurement that you can get, but that's close. And then your body can theoretically, you know, assuming all things are equal, uh, metabolize one drink per hour. So you having three glasses of wine over four hours, your body's going to be able to handle that. So as a starting point, if you're having a drink per hour, assuming you're not drinking for 24 hours straight, your body is going to be able to handle it. What about those people that are total lightweights though? Well, they're actually lightweight, Megan. They're actually way less. <laughs> Their weight is actually light. Okay, well, Often. I cannot connect. Yeah. See body image episode. Right. Um, <laughs> Often true. But I do have answers on that too. I've really gone down the rabbit hole this week Seriously? and learned a lot. You're like a professor. I know. Just tolerance. Well, your tolerance definitely goes up as you drink more. But there's an enzyme. There's actually two enzymes in your body that break down alcohol. The first one is alcohol dehydrogenase. And it takes the alcohol and basically turns it into a toxin that then the second enzyme, which is aldehyde dehydrogenase, then has to deal with. Deals with the toxin? <sighs> yes. Nice. I was burping when you said that, so I'm not <laughs> sure that's going to work out. Cutting that out. Uh, <clears throat> hold on. There's a website called the Protein Data Bank from rcsb.org, which I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it was all very sciencey. Okay. And <laughs> it said... Um, alcohol dehydrogenase is our primary defense against alcohol, a toxic molecule that compromises the function of our nervous system. The high levels of alcohol dehydrogenase in our liver and stomach detoxify about one stiff drink each hour. The alcohol is converted to acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde? Sounds like a nursery rhyme. Acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde. Um, An even more toxic molecule, which is then quickly converted to acetate and other molecules that are easily utilized by our cells. Thus, a potentially dangerous molecule is converted through alcohol dehydrogenase into a mere food stuff. Thank God there's some real people words at the end there. Right. Mere food stuff. I know (laughs) what that is. Anyway, some people have a really low tolerance because they don't have as much alcohol dehydrogenase in their body naturally. Women have a lot less than men. So the reason, other than the fact that women often are smaller than men, the reason that they say a moderate drinker is one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men is because we can't process it, metabolize it as easily because we don't have as much of that enzyme. Yeah. Don't we all have that one friend who has the exact same number of drinks as we do and they get totally shit-faced really yep. fast and it goes from like yep. zero to a hundred and you're like, what the fuck happened to you? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think they've got that. Your science words. <laughs> it takes a long time to convert it to mere food stuff. That's right. <laughs> So Sarah was the one who told me that 
now I'm going to screw it up. You told me, Sarah, I think the other day that yeah. there are more women that are alcoholics than men. Is that right? I think that's backwards. No. So there's more men who are alcoholics than women, but alcoholism among women is on the dramatic rise. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. There's been a lot of research in the last couple of years that talks about basically middle-aged women. It's us. Like it's people like us. It's yeah. <laughs> our listeners. Yeah. Right. <laughs> this is just a PSA. Yeah. The numbers are on the rise overall, but especially with middle-aged women. Okay. Yes. Now I remember this. I read this in some of the materials that were put together for this episode, and this resonated with me so much. It says the pace at which most women live is punishing. And this is from the article, The Reason Why Women Are Drinking More Than They Ever Have by Jeannie Graves for health.com. You race home from a busy day at the office and have emails from work waiting for you and food to prepare and laundry piling up. The easiest thing to do when you're standing at the cutting board making dinner is pour yourself a glass of wine. It's the ultimate decompression tool. The thing is, I can actually see myself repeatedly standing at that cutting board pouring a glass of wine, having a glass of wine while I make dinner. And I feel like there's nothing wrong with that. There isn't. That's right. So drinking is only a problem if it's a problem. Right. If it causes problems or it's a problem for you physically or emotionally or, you know, in your life, then it's a problem. But standing there having a glass of wine just because it's nice is not a problem. It is a decompressing tool though. I will say like if I've had like a crazy, chaotic, hairy day and I'm running around like crazy and I finally have a minute to just sit still and decompress, having like a glass of red wine or something definitely helps me do that. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing with alcohol is it makes you feel good. It's got that biphasal effect. So it makes you feel good, but then it brings you down a little bit, but it does help you unwind. But I think the problem is, can you not unwind unless you have a glass of wine? I mean, now there's the hot tub. So, although I tend to combine the two, so, (laughs) but it is a helpful decompressing tool. Am I having like three bottles by myself after that? I think that's a problem. But if you have a glass of wine while you're making dinner and then maybe like one more before bed, I don't really think that's a big problem. Well, I don't think anyone's saying that's a problem. No. Megan, that's a really great segue. And the reason why is you're talking about unwinding and can you unwind without it? Or do you just like to? Does it just feel good? And I think the difference between that and I was engaged to my fiance at the time was that he didn't know how. He had no tools to handle emotions at all other than drinking. There was no other way. He didn't know any other way. He didn't know how to unwind. He didn't know how to deal with anger. He didn't know how to deal with sadness or even being excited or happy. Mm. Every emotion was overwhelming. Every emotion is overwhelming and every emotion was moderated by alcohol. So I think that is the difference when you get into the stage five of addiction and the different spectrum we were talking about. If you already have the tools and you know how to handle your emotions and things like that, and that's really kind of what AA and all these other type of treatment programs teach you is how to handle your emotions constructively instead of using an unhealthy tool. That's really, I think, the difference and what you have to be mindful of. So let's talk about that, fiance. (laughs) Tell us about his path to alcoholism. And when you figured it out, I guess I would say, when you first realized that there was a problem there. Oh, yeah. So um, I was swiping, as all good stories start, Bumble. (laughs) (laughs) 
swipe, 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 and met him. And immediately, and I would say it was our second date, he told me that his father was a recovered alcoholic, that his mother was a recovered gambling addict, and that his father had been physically and verbally abusive his entire life. So that's where we started on the second date. And I would say right then and there for everyone swiping out there, that is probably where I should have been like, I'm waving a red flag. (laughs) (laughs) Red flag. Well, is that fair though? Because he couldn't control who his parents were. You cannot control your bringing. So I asked, I very responsibly said, are you an alcoholic? And he said, no. Do you have a problem drinking? No. Are you abusive? Are you like your father? Or have you ever had any trouble with women who say you're controlling or anything like that? Damn girl, second date. (laughs) (laughs) But who's going to answer these questions, right? Unless he truly was a alcoholic in recovery who might actually be honest and say, yes, I'm actually recovered or something like that. But someone who's actively in addiction is not going to answer those questions truthfully. But I asked, and at that point is probably, you know, they are notorious for being manipulative. I use that word manipulative and I don't mean maniacal or evil or anything like that. Manipulation doesn't necessarily have to be even a conscious thing that people are doing. And I truly believe that with him. That's when the manipulation started with his disease. And so he said no, but he told me about his path and I gave an empathetic response. I didn't give a, well, it's been nice seeing you. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much for coming out. Mm -hmm. Bye. Right. I was like, (laughs) oh, that sounds so familiar to me. That's Michelle right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me love you. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's so relatable. Come here. I'll take care of you. Yeah. So, um, but at that point when I gave an empathetic response, he knew that I would at least probably subconsciously be empathetic to his situation. It just so happened we started dating immediately, like hit it off. And then within two months I moved and we both had that moment of like, okay, well, we really like each other. We're not very far away. So what do we do? we both got income and time. So let's just keep dating. So we did the back and forth flying and seeing each other all the time and everything was great. And then you get to that point where somebody's got to do something here. I'm not going anywhere. He's going to need to come to where I am. And he did. I thought it was extremely romantic. He quit his job and moved, moved in with me. Cause you were living in another state, right? Yeah, but not very far. It's a 45 minute flight. It was no big whoop. Okay. So he moves and we're excited. He moves in and almost immediately, I noticed the guy falling asleep like all the freaking time. And I immediately bring it up. I'm like, hey, super weird. You fall asleep everywhere. What's up? What's going on? (laughs) Something's wrong with you. You have narcolepsy. Okay. Well, we're going to get there, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) You joke. But I honestly thought like, I think you have narcolepsy. My first thought, because I never saw the guy drink and I'm not a huge drinker. I like drinking. I love my cocktails just as much as anybody else, but I don't drink at home and I'm not much for getting drunk. I like the feeling of a good buzz, but I don't usually get wasted or anything like that. I'm not a heavy drinker. We would go out and have a cocktail together at dinner, but we'd have like one, maybe at most on a fun night too. And he would stop after that? 
Yes. So I never saw him drinking. So I never thought anything. So my mind didn't go to, he's falling asleep because he's drunk. I thought he's falling asleep because there's a medical condition. So I am a problem solver and I problem solved the shit out of this. I found the best medical doctor possible. Oh my God. Guy went to Stanford and I was like, we're going not even covered by insurance. It's fine. I want to get you the best doctor possible. I had video. I had video of this, like doctor, what's going on? And I was there for half of the diagnosis and other part, he was alone with the doctor for an hour and a half. Diagnosed him with narcolepsy, with cataplexia. There's two different types of narcolepsy. We won't get into that, but the cataplexia resembles that of somebody who's drunk. They have loss of muscle control. They have slurred speech all of that. Wow. Dr. Put him on medication. He took the medication for narcolepsy for months. Do you think he believed that he had narcolepsy? For a solid few months later would maintain that he had it. And that is now not the case, but the severity of his denial and willingness to manipulate situations, even to himself was that deep. So he was taking the medication and he was telling friends and family, because he told me he'd done this his whole life. His friends backed it up. I mean, I met his friends. His friends were like, yeah, he's been falling asleep like this all over the place since we were kids. Yeah. Well, that's because he'd been drinking since he was really young. So I did not know anything. I thought he was a narcoleptic. I did not know anything until it was almost New Year's Eve. He had called me. It was at the end of the day of work. And he said he was having an extra sleepy day. And could I come get him? He had already taken all his narcolepsy medicine for the day. He's having trouble staying awake. I went to his work to get him and he was fine. Now he was asleep in his car, but mind you, there was no bottles. There was no nothing. I didn't smell anything, nothing. And he was like, no, no, I'm awake now. I'm okay. I'll drive. So he did. And he was following me home, didn't make it home. I went home and was like, where is he? Because he had narcolepsy. I had an app on my phone so I could track him for safety purposes. And I could see where he was. And I went back to that location and he was surrounded by cops. Oh, wow. And I walk up, you know, a savior, (laughs) you know, like I'm here. (laughs) Look at you. I'm here. (laughs) I'm here. Save you. And I'm like, guys, what are you doing? He has narcolepsy. Okay. He's out of his medicine. He's extra sleepy today. And they're like, ma'am, he's failed the field sobriety test. I'm like, yeah, because narcolepsy makes him seem like he's drunk, but he's not. <laughs> I pulled the doctor's name. I'm like, here you go. Here's all the stuff. You can call the doctor. Like, okay, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll take him, get his blood tested. It's all good. We'll let him go. We'll give you a call. No, what? Right. Hours and hours go by. And then finally they called and they're like, you know, we're booking them. And I'm like, for what? And they're like, for driving under the influence. I'm like, of what? Oh God. He's like, alcohol. And I'm like, wait, what? Because the medicine that he took for the narcolepsy, you cannot drink on it. It will turn, like if you have one drink on these pills, it will make you feel like you've had five. It amplifies the effects of alcohol. So I was shocked. I had no clue, but then that busted it open. There was no way to hide that anymore. Wow. The story that I understood from the police was that he had driven across the center line, was driving in oncoming traffic before crossing back over and landing up in a gas station, completely asleep at the wheel with the car on. And this is like at five o'clock in the afternoon. So this is not late at night. This is daytime, which meant he'd been drinking all day at work. Well, right. this is blood alcohol level. <sighs> so 
Jason's blood alcohol level was 0.385. Holy motherfucker. And so that was normal for him. Now I understand and now I know what he was doing and how often he was doing it and like in what quantities that was normal. So can you share some of that with us? Yeah. I mean, 0.4 is death. So very close to do that to yourself regularly. And by regularly, I don't mean every weekend. I mean like every other day or sometimes every day. How is it possible that you had no idea? Well, I mean, obviously he was using the narcolepsy as a cover, so he would fall asleep, but he didn't ever, he never smelled trunk. I mean, I asked tons of friends who had been around him, same thing. You cannot smell it. He used mouthwash all the time. Mm. I mean, always. He had mouthwash in the car and, you know, bathrooms, bedroom. I was like, what is with you in the mouthwash? And again, he had a plausible reason for that, which was somebody made fun of him when he was a kid for having bad breath. And therefore, he was super self-conscious about it. Pulling at those heartstrings again. Manipulation all the way. It's a manipulation. And you think somebody's being manipulative, it sounds evil or bad. No. I mean, he's just talking about somebody made fun of him as a kid. And I was like, oh, okay, here's some scope. (laughs) Right? (laughs) How was he able to drink without you seeing him? Like, was he drinking at work? Or what about on the weekends? Yeah, so he was drinking at work. He would load up all day. He truly was not drinking in front of me ever. I know and understand he had bottles stashed around the house in all these various secret locations. We always, for company, kept a bottle of vodka in the freezer. It was always the same amount. I never noticed it going down. I know that there was a bottle of vodka in the attic that he was refilling it with. Mm. Wow. He was extremely dutiful and would take out the trash every week. And what a great man without any questions. But that's because it was all the bottles that were being hidden in there. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I go to bed early. And so he would drink after I went to bed. Um, you asked on the weekends. So it would happen. He would load up at night. And then that would keep him pretty much drunk the next day. On the weekends, I think it was harder for him. He said that he would steer our days together around drinking. And so he would agree to go shopping with me. And I would take him in all these little stores and like, you know, we would go shopping and just have the greatest day. But he would steer the day. He'd be like, let's stop and have a snack at a restaurant. Okay. But he would order a cocktail, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, snack time. And I really wouldn't think anything. I'm like, oh, he's just thirsty. Again, he wouldn't have more than one, but he was just maintaining Mm-hmm. Keeping the tank full. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, if you drink an entire bottle of vodka at once the next day, or actually it's going to probably take two or three days for that to get out of your system, you're drunk. You're just at a lower level than the fully anesthetized. Wow. Jesus. I have to say he was the nicest man to me. He was the sweetest man to me. He was the most thoughtful, the most considerate, the most giving guy I have ever dated. Our first date, he showed up with my favorite candy and like, roses because he listened to a bumble chat right that carried through like i was scrolling through his phone being snoopy and came across a bunch of pictures in his cell phone of all of my stuff in my bathroom so that he could buy it to replace the things but he wanted to know what i liked so he would do stuff like that i always came home with flowers you know like the first time i stayed with him the shower was decked out with my shampoo body washes, all the things that I use, he had there. Yeah, I would be swooning too. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm like, this guy gets me. Like he was so into me and so loving and supportive and wonderful and like giving and just amazing. So like, why wouldn't I? Right. But he tells me now that those things that he did were just things to tell me what I wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. And they were just things to distract me from what he was doing. Right. That makes sense. So yeah, I'm going to propose to you because then you'll be distracted by a wedding for a while and you won't notice what I'm doing over here because you'll be, you know, it's, it was all a distraction game and to him, none of it was real. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's fucked up. Yeah. I mean, like the shitty part is because he was so drunk the entire time, he doesn't remember. Of course not. He doesn't remember our relationship. So while like it ending was hard for me because I was there sober through it all, and my emotions were real. His were not. And he doesn't remember most of our time together. That is so, so unfair. It really is. So like he's been able to move on very easily and quickly without any of this typical grief of a relationship because he just, he flat out doesn't remember. Ugh. And how could you at that level? Right. So how did it unravel after he got arrested for driving under the influence what happens when he comes home? Did he just let it all out and tell you everything? Or did you have to figure it out on your own? No, he let it out. I mean, we have honest conversations, at least I thought about it after that point. He was exhausted. He was exhausted from the lying. He was anxious all the time, thinking that I might find a bottle in the house. The lies were exhausting. So he was somewhat, I think, relieved to let it out and be honest. But I would say that honest is with a huge asterisk because he was still very much in denial about what was happening. It's just I now knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm a firm believer and understander that there is no relationships when somebody is in active addiction. And so, you know, I plainly said it to him like that. So I can love you and support you in your recovery. But we can't be in a relationship because, well, you don't know how to love if you don't love yourself. So I'm by default not getting what I need out of a relationship if you don't know how to love. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where it sat. And I just had to detach with love and support him through his recovery um, in whichever path that's going to be as a loving friend. And that's still kind of where I'm at is just, I'm a friend who says you can do it. I know you can. Did he seek recovery after that? He tried it on his own. <laughs> Didn't work out. A little too far gone for that to work. <laughs> that didn't work out. It got to the point where he was going to die. He was binge drinking like that for, you know, five, seven days at a time. And I was like, he's going to die. And I got to do something. His parents didn't want to help. This is my wheelhouse, but I know I'm just not going to let somebody die in my living room. It just so happened that his parents had connected with someone in my town that I was living in. And I called that guy and he was an addiction counselor. And I was like, I don't know you. I need help. And so he told me what to do. And I did it. It was completely out of my norm. I just really didn't even know what to do. But I called 911 because I couldn't pick him up and take him to the hospital or take him to a rehab because he was so out of it. So um, they paramedics came and they took him, at least putting him in that place. Because again, he was at that point, like, Point three nine. So they could at least get him to the point of being sober enough that I could then leave the hospital and take him to rehab. And that's exactly what I did. 
So I had to get him sober enough. I mean, he went to rehab. He was drunk. I took his credit card out of his wallet and was like, swipe. Here you are. (laughs) Good job, girl. (laughs) He was sober enough to consent and sign the forms himself. But even then he blew, he was 0.25. And that was the next day in the afternoon. So this is like a full 24 hours later, he was still 0.25. So yeah, but you would have sat in the room with him like you and I are right now and not have known he was drunk. He was able to converse. He was able to talk, he walk, everything, make jokes. There was nothing about him that seemed like he was inebriated. Not at all. That's a functioning alcoholic, right? No, actually, he's not a functioning alcoholic. He's a dysfunctioning alcoholic. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, he passed that point of functioning a long time ago. But (laughs) taking him to rehab and at least putting him in an environment, and he wanted to go, and he said yes, and he went, and he did the 30 days. At least I knew, as far as just a friend and a human being, getting him to the point where he could be sober enough to make his own decisions about his own life and if he wanted to drink himself to death after that, that was up to him. Right. But at this point, when I took him there, he was no longer able to make his own decisions about life. Al-Anon and AA and things like that, they'll talk about, you know, you're not supposed to help an alcoholic or anyone with an addiction because it doesn't help them. It's codependency, blah, blah, blah. But when you get to the point where someone is no longer able to honestly make any decisions about their life, then it is okay to step in and say, let me, let me help you get to the point where you can. I find that really interesting, the comment about not helping them because of codependency and all that, because one of the kind of primary tenets, I believe, of AA is that you have to give over power. You have to admit that you can't do it on your own and give your personal power to a higher power, right? Yeah. That blows my mind that they would say that you can't help him. Only God can help. Only God can. Not other people. And I had no idea that there was such a religious undertone to AA either. Yeah. So he had a huge problem with that. And that was part of his like stumbling blocks into AA. Now, mind you, he had grown up in AA because of his dad. His dad goes to meetings and still does every single day. So he had gone to meetings as a kid with his dad. He'd gone to Al-Anon as a teen. He was very aware that he was at risk. But when it came time for his own, he hated the God part. Yeah. And he really, really struggled with that. You know, AA has been the standard, the gold standard out there for decades. But now we're starting to see other types of recovery programs out there that don't focus so much on the religion. There's another group out there called Smart Recovery that's more secular, that doesn't focus on God and this powerlessness. Because I I have to tell you, personally, I found that very discouraging that your first thing is to say that you're powerless over your own life. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people now who really take issue with the AA model. Yeah. When I was reading about it, it looks like it was established in 1935. Yeah. There was really no knowledge of brain science at that point. It was so primitive. The fact that they offer one way, there's one way for everyone, no matter what your particular body is, no matter what your particular issue is, there's only one way to quote, get better. Right. There was an article called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous for The Atlantic by Gabrielle Glazer in 2015. They interviewed someone who said that it was really discouraging to him because there there were no small missteps. One drink might as well have been 100. 
Yeah, I've read that vertical because part of my thing is when you're with someone, whether you're partnered, whether you are, you know, a child or a sibling or anything to an addict is really kind of understanding who that person is and what the addiction is and what it's not. And so I did literally a shit ton of reading. Sure. Because you're a fixer. Yeah, I am a fixer, but I'm also very logical. And if I understand something, then I can process it. And so that article, it really resounded with me because I'm not an AA, but I've sat through the meetings and I see the problems with it. And I don't think it's modern. We know so little about the brain even now. There's so very little studies done or medical research done for you know addiction or the addictive brain or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then even now there are medications that are available for alcohol abuse disorder and they're very rarely prescribed, Right, which is a shame because it really could help people. So why aren't we doing more to help these people? What does the medication do? So there's a couple of different medications and really there's just a couple, but there's one that blocks the high feelings of drinking. And by doing that, it recreates the pathways in your brain to no longer, it's no longer seen as a reward system in your brain, but it takes time. And it also takes you drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to drink in order for the medication to create those brain pathways. Again, it doesn't work if you're sober. It's called naltrexone. Yeah, he took it. Did he? He did. But for somebody who, like him, absolutely has to abstain, this is a very dangerous thing. The other one is one that reduces cravings. And there's another one that gives you severe adverse reactions when you drink. Right. I think the problem is require the person who has a problem to actually take the medication themselves. And just knowing my alcoholic here, he knows when he's going to drink. Right. He plans it out. He thinks about it. Mm-hmm. This medication, um, I was listening to a podcast called This Naked Mind by an author, Annie Grace, who went through the process herself of trying to cut back and really struggling to, and having a lot of problems with the all or nothing, you know, absence is the only answer, AA, give up your power model, right? And she ended up coming up with and I haven't read the book yet, but I've read some of her stuff and I've been listening to the podcast and she's incredibly empowering. And the whole thing is about, I think really, what can you gain from maybe not drinking or not drinking as much rather than what am I losing? Like making the whole thing about the giving up really keeps that negative focus and makes it harder. But she did an interview with an actress whose name I'm not remembering at the moment, but this woman had started an organization called C3 they are huge proponents of naltrexone. And this woman herself had tried over a decade's worth of different things to try to stop drinking. And it wasn't until she ended up in a medical detox that she discovered like a pamphlet for this stuff and begged doctors and they wouldn't prescribe it. And it sounds like they're really, really reluctant to do it because the medical industry is really stuck on the all or nothing. You can't you know, say you have a problem drinking and ever have a drink again. So what this drug does is you take it about an hour before you are going to drink and it blocks the highs, the dopamine highs, right? And so you still would enjoy the taste of the glass of wine, um, have Mm -hmm. fun with your friends, have that drink, but you're not going to necessarily want a bunch more because you're not getting that high from it that you would be used to getting. I feel like it's a drug for people who are further back in the stages of alcoholism or earlier who have that kind of conscious effort and things like that. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it would have worked for him. 
No, and I mean, he tried it. It's just he absolutely has to abstain. So doing something like this is entirely too dangerous. But, you know, it's out there and it just, it was never even discussed. It wasn't even discussed at rehab or any of those other points. It was something I brought up and that he brought up to his doctor in order to get, you know, it's that patient advocacy and this stuff is out there, but it's not discussed and it's not talked about with patients the way it should be. It's available. And if it can help people, I mean, most of the time, these people, by the time they get to the point of going to AA, they're desperate to change their lives and they're willing to do absolutely anything to make it stop. Yeah. For me, thinking about the idea of this whole thing as a spectrum rather than this binary, you know, you are or you aren't, it leaves room for more people to think that maybe they have some room for improvement rather than like, I need to fix myself. Something's wrong. It just kind of takes some of that judgment and shame out of it. Right. And if people want to start on the path of cutting back, and then maybe they get to the point where they're like, I've cut back, and I think I'm just going to stop or whatever, taking those steps, the severity of if you decide to go to Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, and you have to quit drinking forever, forever, starting today, for some people are going to be like, forget it, I can't, that's too hard, that's too much all at once, I can't do that. So it seems like there has to be other paths. Some people People do need to stop immediately today, you know, like your former fiance you were talking about. Yep. Sounds like one of those people drinking almost to the point of death every time, but there are different situations. I mean, why do we have all these different personality models and tests to figure out how we function and interact with each other and business and relationships and friendships? But when you have a problem with addiction, there's only one path for everybody. That doesn't really make sense. Right. Yeah, I've been to enough AA meetings to hear uh, his stuff and the quantities he was drinking is not unusual. People drinking two bottles of vodka a day on the regular. It's amazing what the human body can do and can take. So Michelle, since you referenced the naked mind, yes, we should talk about the comments that Annie Grace made about alcohol being the only drug on earth that you have to justify not taking yes. because it's so embedded in culture and our society and even kind of in some of our professional interactions and things like that. It's yeah. If you're not going to drink, then you almost feel like you have to apologize for it. Right. Right. Whereas you wouldn't say like, gosh, you know what? I'm actually not going to have any cocaine tonight. Like, right. That would like, sound crazy. You know, but if I you think say, no on like, the heroin. I think, you know, I think I'm not going to have a glass of wine. Like probably there would be people, I'm like, sure, what? including myself. Yeah. They're like, what? Come on, partake. Have fun. Yeah. Right. Because I think that it is still seen as not as dangerous because it is widely legally available. I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. I also think that we have... Um, I go back to the whole middle-aged woman thing we were talking about earlier, how that's increasing. The numbers are increasing there. Substance abuse disorder is a progressive disease. Right. And it happens over a very long period of time. You know, it can happen over 20 years. It can happen over 10 years. It can happen over two years or very quickly in a type of situational depression, but it's progressive. It comes on so slowly for a lot of people. And then all of a sudden you're at that dependence addictive stage and you're middle-aged because that's right. So you partied a lot in your twenties and that's normal. Check. You partied in high school. That's oh, not the high school part, the twenties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gave that quiz probably to most people in their twenties. I think we all were technically alcoholics. Yeah. Yeah. Check, check, check. The recovery was a lot easier than too on your body. 
Yeah. And then in your thirties, you start getting busy doing other things in life. But if you don't, and like you just continue on, even in some kind of way, then you hit 40 and now it's like, I got a problem. Right. Case in point, several 40th birthday parties, one in particular that Michelle and I went to where everybody was in rough shape the next day. And I was like, holy cow, this is 40. We cannot do this anymore. Right. Yeah. And I think like you were saying, the lives that we live are punishing. You know, we have a lot on our plates all the time. I think that women are still, I was going to say responsible for, but that's bullshit. We take on a lot more of the emotional labor of life and that weighs on you. And so it is nice to relax and have something that you can kind of turn to, to decompress. And don't you think the numbers are probably raising because it's more socially acceptable now for women to drink than it was in like the fifties. I mean, you were supposed to have a scotch waiting for your husband when he got home. Nowadays, the wife is rosé all day. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and that's, it's become this trope, like this mom trope kind of thing. The wine moms. The wine moms. We're the wine moms. Exactly. And it's not just us. They're everywhere. Right. Mommy's juice. Mommy's juice. Yeah. It is a little bit in your face, this like new mom wine culture, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a bit of a pendulum swing. Like it's kind of a overcorrection from the many, many years before of the fact that, you know, women weren't allowed allowed isn't the right word, but it was frowned upon. It It wasn't very ladylike. Right. To do a lot of things. right? Right. And so we have come into an age where shit's still not equal, but we are starting to be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm doing this thing that feels good. And yeah, I'm getting to that. People spot. kind of feel liberated being right. like, fuck it. I have my shit together. I have a job. I have a home. I have a family. I have a lot going on. If mommy needs some juice, mommy's going to have some juice. And there's nothing wrong with that at all, except I think that the trope, the culture of it that has become so prevalent is pretty exclusionary to people who don't drink. And I know a few moms who don't drink at all. Mm-hmm. Um, some just by choice, some because they're now sober. And I think that it really makes it hard for those people to build that mom community, like the kind of mom community that we have, that it's not like we bonded entirely over drinking, but that was certainly a part of getting to know all the people in the neighborhood. It was and continues to be a big part of our socialization. Right. Somebody's going to host dinner. People are going to bring a bottle of wine or whatever, and then you enjoy it together. I mean, we're not raging like we were in our 20s, but there's still people sitting around socializing, drinking, you know, you're socializing over drinks. Yeah. And it's not to say that someone who wasn't drinking wouldn't be welcome. That's not it at all. It's just that they probably wouldn't feel as comfortable or like they'd be as warmly welcomed. Well, we've talked about this in dating. So like in the past... I have dated people who don't drink at all. And sometimes it can be awkward or uncomfortable if we are having one of those nights where everybody's sitting around like having drinks, playing card games or whatever. But a lot of it is that person, like how well they receive the situation and how much they care. Because Currently, I have been spending time with someone, a gentleman, (laughs) who does not drink. And it's the first time that I've ever dated somebody who doesn't drink that it's just totally cool. Why does he not drink? 
He'll have one if it's like a celebratory thing or something, but mostly it's just because in his job, it's very health oriented. Um, I do wonder, I was just thinking about this. I wonder if because the circumstances are what they are with this year and the pandemic and things aren't happening there, we're not having groups of people over, we're not having parties, we're not going out. Mm -hmm. So in a situation where it's just the two of you Mm -hmm. and you're just laying low, Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's easier for you to be comfortable in that situation than it would be if it was a bunch of friends over and he wasn't drinking? Would you feel weirder about it then? I haven't thought about that. Let me think for a second. Put you on the spot. Probably. I mean, like sometimes when we're hanging out, I will pour a glass of wine or have a drink, but it's usually like one because he's not drinking and he doesn't give a shit, you know, if I have something. But I think now that I know him as well as I do, as long as I sensed that he didn't care and he wasn't uncomfortable, I wouldn't care either. Okay. I honestly think it comes down to the comfort of the person in that situation, which going back to, you know, the mommy wine culture that we were talking about. If you are a mom that has friends, family, coworkers that drink and you're used to being around that all the time and it doesn't bother you, I feel like you can sense that. We have friends that do drink, but, you know, we're on like special diets or special fitness program because they're training for something or whatever. And they come over and they're like, oh, I'm not drinking for six weeks or whatever. And we're just like, yeah, cool, whatever. But if I said that to you. They still want to hang out. If I said to you, I'm not drinking for six weeks, you'd be like, wait, what? I'd be like, what's wrong? Are you pregnant? <laughs> no. Oh God. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Sarah, being somebody that does not have children, so you're not part of the mommy wine culture. Oh. What is your outside in observation of all that? I honestly, I, I think it's a dangerous slippery slope. I have to understand like, why is it because the coping is too difficult and you don't have the right coping tools to deal with all of that pressure and that stress? Because it is, it's overwhelming. There's a lot. I have friends who are mothers. What if it's purely a social thing? I'm a social drinker. I like to have my cocktails too, for the same reason why a mom does. But I think it's that culture. I think it's dangerous. And I think it can be very easy to go into a place where it's not good. Gets out of hand. Yeah, it can get out of hand, I think. It seems like wine is not a big deal. You're not sitting there drinking hard alcohol. I don't know about women alcoholics, what they choose more over men, because I, I do know men choose hard alcohol. I don't think there's a ton of men out there buying Chardonnay or Pinot. (laughs) I really can't get off that Chardonnay. I'm drinking like five bottles a day. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm studying enough AA where I've never heard like a man just sit there and be like, I would take down some Merlot. (laughs) But if you're drinking, you know, a bottle of wine every night, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for a long time, I have given myself more of a pass. And that's not to say that I think I have a quote problem at all, but I certainly drink a fair amount. And I think I've given myself kind of a pass on that because I don't really drink at home by myself because it is only when I'm being social, but I am social a lot. And so, you know, I'm actually really looking forward to this year's dry January. Typically in the past, I would cut back significantly on my social life to kind of accommodate not drinking, to make sure that I wasn't like, you know, okay, well, I'm going to be around everybody and they're going to be drinking. So I'm going to want to, and it's going to be hard. You're the uncomfortable date. It's like being on a diet. Like I can't go out because I'm afraid I will feel right. 
I'm going to cheat. Exactly. The social aspect. But this last year, this last January, when I did it again, I didn't change anything about the way that I live my life. I started dating somebody new. I went to a birthday party at the diviest shithole bar by my (laughs) friend's house. Like you don't go in there and not have a drink. Right. But I did. And we had a friend's going away party. I did all the things that I would normally do. We got together for dinners with the kids and yeah. you know, other parents would have a little bit of wine or whatever. And I just didn't. And it felt fine and normal. And I don't think I had any less enjoyment. And so knowing that I was able to do that this year and now armed with all of this information and some resources, and I am going to read Annie Grace's book, The Alcohol Experiment, that's like a day by day for 30 days, kind of take you through some of the stuff to help you just think deeper about it, about your alcohol use and why you do it. And I'm kind of excited for it. I'm not looking to get to a place of like, I'm not drinking, but I want moderation to come more easily to me. I will say we've all talked about our experiences, our own personal experiences with alcohol on this. And I will have to say in me telling my relationship story to my friends and to my family and to anyone near and dear to me, I was more surprised, not at their reactions to him in the situation, but more their own introspective look at their own drinking. Mm-hmm. And I would tell it and I would see their eyes, you know, start working and they'd be like, so, um, I think I drink about this. Do you think about a problem? (laughs) I'm not at all. Don't know anything about addiction counseling or anything like that, but more people would react based upon their own drinking habits than worried about what his were, what was happening or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Or is he okay? Is he in a safe place? They were all like, oh no. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's so relatable. It's something like 68% of Americans, I think of drinking age, consider themselves drinkers. What do you mean by that? Like moderate to heavy drinkers? I think compared to people who completely abstain from alcohol altogether, Mm. there's a large percentage of the world population that does not drink. It changes by region, obviously. The World Health Organization put out their... It was a global status report on alcohol and health from 2018. It was the executive summary that I found a few facts from. Apparently, about 57% of the global population, 15 years of age and older, abstain from drinking. Only in three regions, Americas, Europe, and the Western Pacific, were more than 50% drinkers. Part of why you see different usage statistics and abuse statistics and dependence is that enzyme that I was talking about. It's well-documented that most Asian populations have a very low amount. They get the Asian flush. Exactly. They get the flush really quickly. They have a really low amount of that alcohol dehydrogenase. And so their body does not break it down very well, which means they immediately feel more of the negative side effects that we might feel later as a part of a hangover or later in the night. But that's the reason that only 4.6% of the Asian population is considered heavy problem drinkers. Of all these places, that's very low because they can't drink much. It doesn't feel good to them at all. And so it's the populations that can drink more that then need to drink more to feel something from it that are the most susceptible to that addiction. How much do you think drinking age factors into that too? Like, you know, in some countries, kids can have the beer or whatever Mm -hmm. at dinner if they're with their parents. It's more acceptable to let young adults drink wine or whatever. I mean, one of my favorite people to have a drink with is my dad. So I can totally totally see, you know, having it be a family social thing that you like sit and relax and do together. Yeah. 
How much do you guys think, maybe I should rephrase that. I would be curious to know if there are any statistics yet that show how much the availability of Uber or Lyft, any of those types of rideshare services have reduced the number of people who are drinking and driving. Because I know if we're going to go out to a bar or something and we know we're going to drink, we Uber or Lyft, you know, we just don't even drive our cars because we have that option. Whereas even five, 10 years ago, that wasn't an automatic thing. You would maybe drive there. Then it was the decision, right? Are you sober enough to drive your car home? Or are you going to call someone and try to get a ride? What if it's late? You know, you're drinking responsibly and you're thinking about things responsibly, but somebody who might have a substance abuse disorder isn't thinking responsibly. I mean, that's the opposite of it. And so they have no problem driving. Yeah. It's a different thought. I'm grateful that that option exists as my children coast into preteen oh, years God, because yeah. I feel like we're going to like blink and they're going to be in college. That's and scary. You can have all those conversations and I will have all those conversations about being responsible and doing the right thing and not making a selfish decision that could impact somebody else's life. But when a kid is a kid and under the influence, just knowing that it's as easy as like touching an app on your phone is Mm -hmm. something that makes me grateful for them. I remember, God, I must have been fairly newly of drinking age. And there was some company that started here in Seattle that it was these people who would just ride their scooter to wherever you were. They would put their scooter in your car, they would drive you home, and then they would ride their scooter away. Yep. I never heard of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Please tell me there was like a really catchy name. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. I never used them, but I remember they thinking. They also like unlock your door for you if you keep dropping your keys. <laughs> that I don't know. The name Anna is in my head. That maybe there was a person named Anna who died from some sort of alcohol related thing and they mm-hmm. started this in her honor, something like that. Okay. I could be completely making that up, but that's ringing a bell right now. I just remember thinking, what a great idea. And we had taxis, obviously, but it was before. Hey, there some was... of us grew up in towns where there were not taxis. <laughs> All right, Montana. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up where there were no taxis. That was a fancy big city thing. (laughs) That's still that way. I think there's probably Ubers, but drinking and driving is just so dangerous. I think, Megan, if you wanted to really know, like find out how many DUI arrests there are. I doubt it's changed. I would like to think that Uber has made that difference, but... I'm holding out a little hope. I kind of think that there are people that have gotten DUIs that had good intentions, you know, when they went to the bar of not drinking too much or think they're fine or whatever. But if you completely take the decision out of the equation by Ubering, then it's just not even a judgment call. You make the judgment call before you even start drinking. Before you go. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. This episode brought to you by, by Uber. Uber. Actually, no, <laughs> fuck Uber. This episode brought to you by Lyft. They changed some things. It's better oh, now. Okay, if you okay. say so. Oh, boy. <laughs> Can never not be political. Nope. So something that we've talked about before, Megan, 
Sarah, maybe you can chime in here as well, is alcohol consumption as part of a profession. And I know as someone who was in the hospitality industry for basically two decades, including owning a bar for over a decade, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of drinking. And often there's a lot of other substance abuse. Fortunately, in my hospitality career, that was not an issue at all for me. And there wasn't much of it around me that I know of, I suppose. But I don't think it was like rampant at our place. Some of the statistics that I've seen about heavy alcohol use by profession, you know, put hospitality kind of right up there. But the top was um, attorneys. And it was like one in five. Talk about people who need to decompress. Right. (laughs) Woo. I believe that. Cat on the back. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> it was that first semester of law school. I mean, I think it was like even the first week of law school and like orientation. We had a substance abuse kind of like counseling meeting. Like, hey, you need to be aware you are particularly high at risk for this. Oh. Well, and as part of our profession, we're required every year to take professional responsibility, which often includes a session on substance abuse disorders. I'm glad that they do that. It doesn't sound like it's doing a great job so far, but but I'm glad that they're aware of it, I guess. Well, that number could be even higher. I, that's true. I would say that number should probably be higher. Every industry is going to have its, its pitfalls. Right, but certainly some of them are going to contribute more to. Well, there's um, even doctors up there, like well, doctors, lawyers, right, like and people that you consider like very upstanding well, members of society. The healthcare one for me is kind of the most baffling because they're going to be the most familiar with the effects of it, right? And they it's see a very, lot of shit, right? Though. And it's very stressful. Like the number of nurses and doctors that smoke is insane. Mm. Like they obviously know the risks, but yeah, yeah, it's just that stress relief, I guess. Megan, you go to conference and stuff. And what happens, what happens at those? There are typically, if it's meetings, there's typically dinners. Dinners typically start with like cocktails and then we have wine with dinner and then we might have like a nightcap or something. And drinking is definitely part of the social networking. If you go to conferences, there's always a bar where people are going to meet at to like discuss something or dinners where there's, you know, an open bar or whatever. I mean, Drinking and cocktails are always part of social networking in my industry. Business gets done over drinks. Yeah. And there's kind of like bonding and relationships formed. And honestly, if I didn't drink, I feel like it would be weird and awkward. Do you think you would have a harder time advancing in your career in what you do without that? I don't think I would necessarily have a harder time advancing but I'm not sure I would have like all the relationships and stories and the same bond I have with some of the people that I work right, with. Right, which I think could lead to it being harder to advance. I get possibly, I guess. It depends on the culture of the company. Right. Obviously, you know, in the industry and in the company that I work for, drinking is not frowned upon and we do all have stressful jobs and right. work long hours and hmm. it's sort of an acknowledged age-old method of decompressing. So some madman. You just you gotta be careful because there's the line between having cocktails and social networking and then like behaving in a way that embarrasses your company or could cost you your job. Of course. Yeah. I don't typically drink at company things because when I drink I have a leg problem. They spread. That kind of girl. (laughs) I typically keep drinking in professional situations to a minimum. 
Well, I mean, at least you know that about yourself, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's number two on that list? Um, mining. <laughs> when was the study from? 1922. No. So basically all of Alaska. Right. It was from 2014. It says lawyers at 20%, miners mining at 17.5, construction at 16.5. Like that. That's the fucking bullshit lie. That is a lie. You think it's higher? They come with a little igloo cooler and they open it up. There's Takati in there. That's their lunch. Come on. That's not Gatorade. <laughs> Let's see. Physicians, about 15%. Hospitality, about 12 Entertainment, 11 And it goes down from there. Education made the list. It does only say 4.7%. And this is people self-reporting heavy alcohol abuse in the month prior to the survey. I don't know if there's some kind of teachers drink a lot trope or... Dude, I, I, I mean, mean, I would. Imagine it. I, imagine what it's like taking care of your kids. Then multiply that times 20 and do it all day, five days a no, week. No, there's a reason I don't do that. Yeah, no, it's, I would probably need something harder, actually. <laughs> you know, I, I don't disagree. I just chaperone a field trip and I'm like, I need to sleep for three days. Yeah. I'm so tired. And that's a couple hours. Right. Ooh, so you said sleep. Let's real quick. We'll talk about sleep. Oh, I cannot sleep when I drink. Yeah, it definitely interferes. So, you know, a lot of people think it helps them go to sleep. And passing out is not the same thing as going to sleep. There's a sedative effect. This is from an article called, Does Alcohol Really Help You Relax? by Tanya Lester for Psychology Today from like, a week ago. It says, while the sedative effect of alcohol initially might help us fall asleep, as little as one drink too close to bedtime can wreak havoc on both the quality and quantity of your sleep. Alcohol interferes with our sleep stages, especially REM sleep, the restorative part of our sleep cycle. When it finally leaves your bloodstream, you're often jolted awake as your nervous system, coming off of several hours in a depressed state, tries to achieve homeostasis by lurching into active mode. So you're not getting any good sleep. So you might be passed out for 10 hours, but you're going to wake up not feeling refreshed at all. You feel like shit. Yeah. Right. Thus that hangover, I guess. Is any part of that to do with age? Because, I mean, I think we could all drink and when we were younger and when you hit your 30s, it gets harder. And then when you hit 40, you're like, what the fuck? Like, oh, yeah. you have a couple of drinks. It's like you've been in Vegas all weekend. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. As previously established. Yeah. 40 especially seems to be that number where it's like, God damn, you know, it's not such a good show anymore. So I want to talk about this article, the radical transparency. Sarah, you may have learned this about me from listening to some episodes that I tell everybody everything. And I, I don't think anything should be kept secret because stigmas and shame are bullshit. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's how I am. She was like, you cannot use your name. I'm like, why? I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. Uh, everybody can know my shit and if they can learn, great. Right. Exactly. Sharing is caring. That's right. <laughs> so I definitely want to kind of end on that. Well, because, because this we always say that we're trying to destigmatize right. shit. Like that's one of our big goals of this podcast is, you know, whether it's a sex club or a mental health issue or, or fucking apologizing or tattoos or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm so glad you even just said that because one of the things that 
came up in our relationship was that I told people what was happening and he was beyond angry. Yeah. He was beyond angry that I had told people what had been his life secret and that that was his thing and whatever. And I'm, I mean, it intersected with my life. So I'm like, yeah, it's actually, it's my life now. So I can tell it, but in 100%, I never, ever was embarrassed by his thing or ashamed or mad or any of that. And I never want him to feel that way. He has nothing to be ashamed of or feel bad about or feel guilty about. I hope that he gets there one day. I think he probably still does feel that way. But I I really hope one day that he can live and talk in a very honest way without feeling any of those feelings. And I would say to him all the time, a diabetic, they're not feeling bad or guilty or shame because they have to take insulin. I mean, you should not feel any more shame about having a substance abuse disorder than somebody with diabetes. So it's a mental and a medical condition. Not to mention he's totally predisposed if you look at his parents and his upbringing. And I mean... You know, we don't shame people who have genetic breast cancer. Right. You know, so why should he or anyone else who's, you know, genetically predisposed to a substance abuse disorder feel guilty, ashamed, or embarrassed by it? And they shouldn't. Well, it's one of the few afflictions that we blame the patient for. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Hmm. It's, oh, that person did this to themselves. Mm -hmm. They should have had some fucking self-control or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, Sarah, more people need to have someone like you in their corner who is willing to try to help them see around that shame and stigma because it's so damaging and people are so less likely to seek treatment if that's where they're coming from. If they feel like it's a shameful thing, that there's judgment. I think anytime there's something wrong with somebody that's based on choices a person makes, there's a lack of empathy and understanding because people think that it should be easy for someone to just decide not to do that thing anymore. Yeah. And that's not how it works. Like let's take something totally different, like an eating disorder. Let's say somebody is throwing up everything they eat or restricting calories. That is a mental illness. They can't just say, Oh, jeez. You're right. I should. Why am I doing that? I'm I'm just going to stop. I mean, there's something in their brain that is telling them that they can't stop that behavior. And yet, if you see someone who's incredibly thin that might have an eating disorder, you know, the first thing that a lot of people say is, "Ew, gross. She needs to eat something." You know, it's like judgment. It's it's the judgment and the shame. I just think any time that there's a mental component to whatever the disease is, like you're actively choosing something because maybe you don't feel like you have control over that choice. There will always be people who assume that you do. And that's unfair. Well, I want to bring back to one of your previous episodes where you had the psychologist on who was talking about the reptilian brain. Mm -hmm. I believe, and I recall from my law school classes on this, the addiction lies in the reptilian brain. So when you get to the point of that, it is not just the physical, but psychological compulsion and need that they don't necessarily have control over. And so I think that part of what any treatment program or 12-step program does is teaches you how to make choices over that because it's always there and it's always speaking to them and it doesn't go away. It's just, they have to learn how to counterbalance it and make different choices because it's always still there. I have great empathy and I do have a ton of respect for people who do recover from this because I can't imagine having to live every moment of my life or my day 
saying to myself, okay, now breathe. Now don't breathe. And now breathe. Now don't breathe. And they have to do that. Mm-hmm. And the amount of energy that that takes and the amount of discipline. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for people going through recovery or who have recovered and what type of effort that that takes for them. Yeah. And I think if more people were willing to share their stories and talk about these things openly, it would make it easier for everyone else to access the resources and even the tools within themselves, their own strength and power to confront these things. Because it becomes impossible if you don't believe you're capable. If you don't think you have the power to change anything about yourself, if you think it's outside of you, I I find the the AA thing so confusing because you're saying that they're trying to give you tools to like overcome some of this stuff. But again, at the same time, they're saying you're powerless and you got to give it to this guy over here. It's so bizarre to me. Well, everybody that I know recovered from an addiction has had a support network, has been fortunate enough to have like a primary support person and a supportive family. That's one of the reasons why, like, for example, when you're trying to like lose weight, let's say you're encouraged to be vocal about it because the more vocal you are, the more people you have like cheering you on. Right. And yet at the same time, holding you accountable and you're holding yourself more accountable because all these other people know about it. So getting rid of that shame gets rid of the secretive component of it. And if you are fortunate enough to have somebody like Sarah or to have an understanding family or primary support person that's going to help you get through whatever you're trying to battle, whether it's an addiction to alcohol or food or you know whatever you're struggling with, that makes a huge difference. So Mm -hmm. I can see where needing to give some of it to somebody in the form of, I'm giving you this information about me and I need your support. I think that's different. It is different. I think that has got a lot of value and Mm -hmm. benefit. Telling somebody that they're completely powerless in this fight doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of people who have successfully completed that program. So. Yeah, it has worked for a lot of people. It will continue to work for a lot of people. And I think there are a lot more that it probably can't work for. Well, yeah. And I think for a lot of people, it can't be the only component. I think it's one tool that you use. The good thing about AA is that it's free and it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, especially back when it started in the 30s, therapy was not a thing to most people. That was kind of like a yuppie rich person thing to do. Until I, I kind of feel like the past 20 years when it became more acceptable that people go to therapy just on their own. You're looking at two of them right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like, I think AA was something that for so long was the only thing that was available. But if you're somebody struggling with substance abuse disorder, using a medical doctor for medications like we talked about, or a lot of people who have these disorders have comorbidities with other psychological or emotional issues and anxiety or depression yeah. or things like that. They also need to be treated. And then talking to a therapist, go talk to someone. What I always found very frustrating about AA is if you get to talk in a meeting, which during the pandemic, don't even get me started. That's really impossible for addicts right now to struggle through this pandemic because they're not doing in-person meetings and they're missing that human connection. It's very challenging for them. But so they give you in AA, if you get to talk, you get two minutes 
And sometimes they have ones there, they have speakers that are much longer than that. And so you might go to a meeting and you never get to talk or share your story. You don't actually have to share anything ever at all. But I would think that's hard. I think as you can tell from this podcast, I'm I'm a talker. Yeah. If they gave me a minute clock, I would be like, whoa, whoa, we're just getting warmed up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it can be really cathartic just to say things out loud, even if it's not to a professional. Sometimes just getting those words out of yourself can help you start to can just take a little bit of a weight off. I was also telling Megan, part of my thing with AA, there are more men who are addicts and that's just the simple numbers. And having women who are in those meetings for a lot of people, not just women, but men included, the childhood abuse and trauma that they have been through is a precipice to the substance abuse disorder. And so if you're a woman sitting in a room full of men who are self-proclaimed alcoholics, and your problem is you were abused by a man who smelled like whiskey when you were a kid, can you imagine sitting there and try in a room like that? And this is really your main option in life to seek salvation from your disorder and to, you know, recover is to sit in a room full of men just trying to go through that and not be completely triggered. I had never thought of that before. That would be incredibly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I think the experience for women is more challenging in recovery because of the dominance to men. Uh, treatment centers, a lot of them are owned by men, run by men. The counselors are men. There's just needs to be more focus and more resources and more treatment that is just focused on women because they have special issues and special needs. Yeah, absolutely. I read somewhere, and of course I don't have this in front of me right now, but that basically all clinical trials of anything related to alcohol abuse were conducted on men until sometime in the late nineties or something like that. It was a ridiculously recent time frame. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. So they just don't know as much about how everything affects women and what the differences might be and what they might need to do differently. As we kind of wrap this up, I want to mention an article that I think I read four times that really spoke to me as someone who never shuts up about all the things. (laughs) Um, It's called Radical Transparency is the New Anonymous in Addiction Help. It's for Psychology Today by Adi Jaffe, and it was from just a couple weeks ago. A couple things that he says here, uh, when we keep our addiction or mental health struggles a secret, our internal shame intensifies. The old idea of hiding in shame from the quote, normal public for fear of persecution, ridicule, or simple embarrassment has actually exacerbated the possibility of individuals suffering those fates. When you stand up and proudly announce your ongoing efforts to battle and win against your demons, you allow those close to you into the reality that is your life. Um, And this is a guy who struggled with meth addiction, very publicly has talked about it, sex addiction. He and his wife have a podcast where he talks about those things, their infidelity. I mean, he is putting it all out there. Mm. And he quoted one of my favorite humans ever, Brene Brown. (laughs) She's Um, got a running streak on our podcast. She does. (laughs) But she says, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. So... I get the benefit of the anonymous model, but I think it might be doing more harm than good for most people. As someone who in the past few years has moved from, I don't talk about stuff that's uncomfortable to here's all my shit all the time for everyone. (laughs) It is fucking liberating and it makes it a hell of a lot easier to address whatever's going on. 
So I would encourage everyone to try to open up to someone. You don't have to start a podcast and tell everyone like I did, but um, (laughs) just somebody try to talk about something that you find uncomfortable with someone that you trust or be the someone that they trust. Absolutely. Be open to receiving that information and having that conversation without judgment. It's incredibly helpful for whatever you might be going through. So that is my soapbox so for we today. Not allowed to say cheers or No, we are saying cheers. <laughs> we have been upfront about drinking during the alcohol podcast. <laughs> it's right. fine. Sarah, thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this. This has been wonderful to have you on here telling your stories and helping and for us. Being honest and transparent. Yeah. It's really valuable. Totally. And thank you guys for having me. This is an important topic, especially during the pandemic. And if anybody thinks they need help, know someone that needs help, reach out to any of the resources that are out there. I'm sure you guys are going to put it in your show notes like you guys always do. There's tons of helplines, AA or things like that counselors that can help get you on your way to recovery. And it's absolutely possible. You can do it. And if Bill is out there listening, I believe in you. You can do it. We believe in you too, Bill. You got this. You got it, man. (laughs) Yes. So as per usual, you can find us on all the social media (sighs) at Prosecco Theory. Please rate and review and subscribe. It's the only way we get in front of more people and spread the word. Feel free to reach out at cheers at ProseccoTheory.com. And uh, thank you for joining us today. And thank you again, Sarah. Thank you. We love you. Have a good night. Cheers. 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 Good job. (laughs) 